0: Welcome to the second episode of the new JPO podcast, brought to you by The Journal and POSNA. I'm Carter Clement, one of your co-hosts and a faculty member at Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Over the next 20 minutes, we'll review eight featured articles and bring you interviews with three authors and a guest commentator. We'll start with the spine section of The Journal and an article entitled, Is Routine Spine MRI Necessary in Skeletally Immature Patients with Multiple Hereditary Exostoses, or MHE? Historically, some authors have recommended spinal MRIs in all skeletally immature patients with MHE to look for intraspinal masses. The purpose of this study was to determine if that criteria can be narrowed to certain patients. The investigation was performed at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia where a tumor database was used to identify 227 MHE patients over the last 24 years. 21 had undergone spine screening with axial imaging, of which only one was symptomatic. Eight of those 21 patients had spinal osteochondromas. In four of those eight cases, including the symptomatic patient, the lesions were in the canal, all of which were cervical. The symptomatic patient is the only one who underwent surgery. After assessing factors, the authors found that rib and pelvic osteochondromas were the best predictors of spine lesions. Specifically, if rib and pelvic lesions were both present, the sensitivity for spine lesions was 100%, and specificity was 69%. I now have the pleasure of welcoming senior author Alex Arcader from CHOP. Dr. Arcader, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Would you mind explaining your current algorithm for screening MHE patients? And is there department-wide criteria used at CHOP? I don't think we
1: have a strict algorithm. I think this has to be individualized patient's needs and presentation. We will obtain further imaging of the spine in kids with MAG if they have any symptoms that lead us to believe that there is osteochondroma causing those symptoms. So even though this paper found that spine lesions were predicted
0: by lesions in the axial skeleton, is it fair to say that in your opinion, it's reasonable to only screen patients with neurological symptoms rather than ordering an MRI when
1: you see concomitant
0: rib and pelvic lesions?
1: Absolutely. There's some literature saying that you should routinely get MRI for patients with MG. However, that will unlikely change the management of those patients. So there's no sense in getting more exams if you're not going to do anything about it. If you order the MRI and the patients that you're worried about spinal involvement due to their symptoms, I think you will find the patient population that actually needs the MRI and they might benefit from treatment.
0: And lastly, in your opinion, do these patients with lesions in the spine, pelvis, and ribs represent a subset of the disease we haven't identified yet with lots of axial involvement, or do you think these patients have
1: the exact same disease but are more severely affected? I think that's to be determined, to be honest with you. We're trying to relate the genotype and the phenotype. There's very little literature on that, so this is an ongoing perspective study in our institution. But certainly, um, even in the same family, you can see patients uh, with completely different presentation of disease with more involvement axially or, or an appendicular skeleton. The only thing we can say from this data is that there's probably patients with more of a predisposition in the axioskeleton. That being said, there are patients that have more angular deformities in the lower extremities. There are patients that have more of an upper extremity involvement. We just don't know yet.
0: Thank you for joining us, Dr. Arcader. It was my pleasure, thanks for having me. Next, we continue with the spine section of the journal and an article entitled, Comparison of Intended Lengthening of Magnetically Controlled Growing Rods, Ultrasound versus X-ray. The work was performed at DuPont Hospital in Delaware, where the authors sought to determine whether ultrasound can be used to assess lengthenings instead of X-rays, which would reduce radiation exposure. They studied 100 lengthenings among 16 patients each of which was assessed by both ultrasound and x-ray. Among patients treated initially with magnetic growing rods, that is, no previous history of traditional growing rods, x-ray measurements slightly exceeded the intended lengthenings by 10%, and ultrasound measurements tended to be smaller than the intended lengthenings by 25%. The major weakness of the study is that we don't know the actual lengthening that occurred. Still, the authors showed that ultrasound provides confirmation of successful expansion, it just underestimates x-ray measurements. Among patients who had previously been converted from traditional growing rods to magnetic rods, there was no significant difference between ultrasound and x-ray measurements, but both were significantly less than the intended lengthening. This is presumably due to increased scar tissue in these patients. Next, we turn to the lower extremity section of the journal for an article entitled Recurrence After Surgical Intervention for Infantile Tibia Vera Assessment of a New Modified Classification. The work was performed at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital where the authors modified the Langenskold classification and retrospectively reviewed 82 patients with infantile blounts. The simplified classification uses three groups. A is the least severe with some metaphyseal lucency at the medial proximal tibia. In Bs, the medial metaphysis slopes down then back up like a ski jump, but the epiphysis is not sloped. In Cs, both the epiphysis and metaphysis slope down sharply. In total, the authors included 115 limbs treated with osteotomies and report two major findings. First, patients over age 4 had a significantly greater risk of recurrence, which is consistent with previous literature. Second, type C, with a sharply downsloping epiphysis as well as metaphysis, was associated with 70% recurrence versus 20% in type A and B patients. As a comparison, the authors used the Langenskold system and observed recurrence among half of grade 3 patients and two-thirds of grade 4 patients. The authors therefore concluded that their simplified classification predicts recurrence more accurately than the Langenskold system. Of note, it is also substantially easier to use. Further research would be valuable in determining whether this simplified classification is only prognostic for surgical patients, or if it can also guide initial treatment. I'll now hand things over to one of my co-hosts, Julia Sanders, an assistant professor of pediatric orthopedics at Children's Hospital in Denver.
2: Next, we'll move to the journal sports section and welcome senior author Jason Rhodes, an attending surgeon at Colorado Children's Hospital, to review his article entitled Epidemiology of Anterior Tibial Spine Fractures in Young Patients, a Retrospective Cohort Study of 122 Cases.
3: Thank you for having me. For this study, we set out to characterize the current epidemiology of anterior tibial spine fractures. As historically, these were described in bicycle and motor vehicle accidents, but with our experience here and these injuries, we found that they occur in sporting events such as football, soccer, skiing, and wrestling. We retrospectively reviewed 122 pediatric patients with anterior tibial spine fractures between 1996 and 2014, and found that organized sports represented the most common cause of these injuries. Other common mechanisms were bicycle accidents, outdoor sports like skiing, which are very common here in Colorado, and falls. Males represented the majority of our patient population, and were found to be significantly older at the time of injury. BMI and sex were not found to correlate with fracture severity, although patients under 11 and a half years of age were more likely to have displaced fractures compared to older patients.
1: Thanks,
2: Dr. Rhodes. What are the implications of this study for practicing providers?
3: To our knowledge, this represents the largest and most detailed epidemiological study in pediatric patients with this injury. Providers treating knee injuries sustained during any activity in the pediatric population should have high index of suspicion for an anterior tibial spine fracture. Initial evaluation should include plain radiographs and a diligent physical exam. We recommend MRI for classification and treatment workup as well as identification of associated injuries such as partial ACL tear and or meniscal or chondral injuries.
2: Lastly, what is your current protocol for managing these injuries?
3: Here at Children's Hospital, we routinely treat non-displaced type 1 fractures non-operatively with casting. For displaced fractures, specifically type 2 injuries and occasionally type 3 pending on injury pattern, we get an MRI to ensure that there are no other associated injuries and if there are not, then we'll attempt closed treatment for a type 2 injury. If there are other injuries or we do not obtain an acceptable reduction or on a type 3 injury, we then treat these arthroscopically with anatomic reduction and either screw or suture-based fixation as well as appropriate treatment of any associated injuries. We begin weight-bearing at six weeks postoperatively and have a gradual increase in range of motion which varies by provider. And after appropriate physical therapy, patients can expect a full return to sports in four to six months. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Rhodes. Thank you very much, Dr. Sanders.
0: Next, we'll discuss an article from the hip section of the journal out of Argentina entitled Treatment of Skiffy with the Modified Dunn Procedure, a Multi-Center Study. The authors reviewed 21 hips that underwent surgical dislocation and capital realignment, also known as the Modified Dunn Procedure, as described by Gans and colleagues, for either stable or unstable Skiffy at three institutions across Argentina. All procedures were performed by surgeons specially trained in hip preservation, and average follow-up was 40 months. The mean slip angle improved from 59 degrees to 5 degrees, and 65% of patients had good or excellent outcomes. However, the complication rate was 51%. Six hips developed complete osteonecrosis and four developed partial osteonecrosis. A positive bleeding sign intraoperatively did not correlate with the development of necrosis. AVN was seen in half of the patients with unstable slips and a third of those with stable slips. Ten hips required additional surgery ranging from hardware removal to total hip arthroplasty. Based on the high rate of AVN, the authors have now abandoned the modified Dunn for acute unstable slips in favor of the parsh technique, which is an open anterior reduction. They now reserve the modified Dunn for select cases of severe stable slips with open physes. I'll now hand things over to co-host Craig Lauer, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Orthopedics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. To consider the implications
2: of this work, we welcome hip preservation specialist Dr. Woody Sankar of Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Dr. Sankar, thanks for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: How many of these procedures do you think a surgeon should perform in order to maintain their skills?
4: So I think it's a good question and a seemingly simple one but I don't know that it's quite so easy to answer. I think it probably depends a little bit on the individual surgeon and how much experience they have with uh, open hip preservation. So if it's a somebody who does surgical dislocations frequently and uh, they're only doing one or two modified done procedures a year that's probably fine. If in contrast it's a uh, a surgeon who predominantly does foot and ankle or sports, for example, and wants to be able to do modified duns on a call, they probably require more uh, every year to maintain their skills. So I don't know if there's an exact number, but I, I would imagine somewhere around a handful, three to five perhaps is a reasonable number to think about.
2: The authors, they ended up changing their practice based off of their study results and stopped doing modified duns for every unstable slip and seem to now prefer the PARSH technique other than reserving the modified dun for a severe stable slip uh, with open physes. What is your current practice for managing stable and unstable skiffies?
4: For unstable slips, it still is my preference to do the modified dun procedure. Uh, I like the control that's afforded by the uh, operation. I like being able to deal with anything that you find intraoperatively and to be able to control the reduction uh, and tension uh, by way of your surgical technique. So that is my preference. I think that being said, I certainly uh, am one hip surgeon at a large tertiary care uh, children's hospital, so I don't expect nor am I physically able to be available to do every unstable slip that comes in. So for our overall group, we have uh, the equipment in place uh, to do the technique that's been described by uh, Tim Schrader and John Scheniker, which is... Uh, either a closed reduction or a true in-situ pinning, uh, using an ICP-Pro placed through a cannulated screw to monitor uh, seal perfusion. And I think this is a nice technique uh, that uh, really anybody can use. Uh, and uh, for my own institution, where again, I, I can't take call for every single uh, slip, uh, I like to have my partners to be able to do this. For stable slips, um, I've actually evolved a little bit in my thinking uh, over the last uh, five to eight years. And this is based on uh, some data that i uh, um, Uh, results and myself are looking at Uh, and this has shown that for those severe stable slips that undergo a modified done even if you do not get a necrosis we found that the femoral heads don't grow quite right Uh, there's a little bit of astericity uh, without collapse sometimes i've seen arthrofibrosis and some chondrolysis again even if you've uh, dodged the the major complication of uh, of avascular necrosis so these days my own indications for doing a severe stable slip would be uh, open physis. Uh, and a severe deformity that I just think is not amenable to any other reconstruction, whether it be in situ pinning and an osteoplasty or in situ pinning and a a flexion derotation osteotomy. So uh, I really reserve it for the handful of cases where I feel like there's good informed consent and the deformity is very severe.
2: In this study, they noted that six of their patients who had positive bleeding signs ended up developing AVN regardless of having good bleeding intraoperatively. This is not the first study to cast out an intraoperative perfusion monitoring. You mentioned that you do check femoral head perfusion during the surgery with ICP monitors. How do those results of that monitoring change your plan intraoperatively?
4: Yeah, so I thought that was an interesting finding of that paper, uh, and there's another paper published by Eduardo device which looked a little bit more uh, objectively at uh, different forms of monitoring ICP probe and then the drill hole and whether you do it before or after reduction. And that study found uh, that uh, all of these mechanisms predicted uh, perfusion postoperatively better than random chance, but none of them were perfect. So I certainly do use monitoring intraoperatively. Um, I prefer an ICP Pro because I think it is a little bit more objective than making a small drill hole. I never know if I make the hole, how much bleeding is enough bleeding, whether it's a little bit of slow venous ooze or whether it's uh, more brisk bleeding. So I like seeing a waveform uh, to feel more comfortable about the status of my perfusion. Um, I usually check uh, early uh, before I uh, do much of the... Uh, the mobilization of the retinacular flap just to see that I have uh, perfusion and kind of a baseline. And then I certainly do most of my monitoring after I've reduced the epiphysis and that's where I feel like you have the most ability as a surgeon to fine tune things. So uh, if I see that I had perfusion before, but then I don't after epiphyseal reduction, then I'm more likely to take, uh, the epiphysis off again uh, shorten the neck a little bit make sure that my uh, retinaculum is really tension free before I, I try to re-reduce it uh, because i think that you certainly can uh, uh, change perfusion based on the tension of this and then even after i've uh, gotten reduction if the perfusion is good and then i go ahead and close the capsule i try to check the uh perfusion uh again through the uh screws that i place uh, and if i see that the perfusion drops out again then i, I want to make sure that i i uh, haven't closed the capsule too tight because that can uh, affect your issues even after a good reduction.
2: Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Again, this is uh, Dr. Sankar from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next, we'll discuss an article entitled Age-Dependent Reliability of sims weinstein and Two-Point Discrimination Tests in Children, which comes out of the University of Maryland Department of Orthopedics. The lead author is Karan Dua, and senior author is Joshua Abzug. So the purpose of this study was to determine at what age objective sensory tests can be reliably performed and what the norms are. The authors propose that this is important because a sensory exam is critical, especially in traumatic settings. Objective tests are important for those children who are too young to really describe numbness. The methods included a prospective enrollment of non injured children aged two to 17 years who perform these tests in the clinic setting. Then they analyze the result. As for their results, the first portion of their Study focused on the monofilament test. They determined that 27% of three-year-olds could actually perform this test. 83% of four-year-olds and all kids five years or older could detect the largest size of the monofilament, indicating they were capable of performing this test. When it came down to average sizes of the monofilament detected, it was 2.87, 2.87, and 3.04 were the sizes for the ulnar, median, and radial nerve distributions. As for the two-point discrimination test, They found that 33% of four-year-olds could perform this test, 61% of five-year-olds, 88% of six-year-olds, and 95% of seven- or eight-year-olds. By the time you're nine, they could universally perform this test. The numbers, if you're looking for a reference, again, was 3.35, 2.81, and 9.64 millimeters in the ulnar median radial nerve distributions. Dynamic distributions were a little bit smaller. for both that and the monofilament test, the ulnar and median nerves were more sensitive than the radial, which should not be a surprise. Ultimately, the authors recommend that you compare your results from one side of a patient to the other side, as there was not a significant change based on handedness, at least for the median ulnar distributions, there was a slight change in radial. Um, they don't really establish an abnormal value or list ranges of what was found to be in these normal kids, but they do show the mean numbers in their sample. My takeaway or the way to simplify this and apply it would be, it would be reasonable to remember the number four. So anything that is four millimeters or larger or four for the monofilament size or larger represents an abnormal value in the monofilament size and the two-point discrimination, at least for median ulnar distributions. I think that this is an important study for showing us at least uh, which children can perform these tests and frankly um, they're quite a bit younger than I would have expected. And it's pretty essential for anyone who is treating children in the emergency department and trying to rule out a nerve injury.
0: Thanks, Craig. Next, we turn to the upper extremity trauma section of the journal to discuss an article entitled Patient and Parent Satisfaction with Sling Use After Pediatric Upper Extremity Fractures, a randomized controlled trial of a customized cast sling versus standard cast and sling. The study was performed at Brown University where 100 patients with long arm casts were randomized to receive either an off-the-shelf sling or a custom sling, which the authors call a providence sling, as previously described by Mercer Rang. This entails a strand of four-inch stockinette that is passed through a loop of fiberglass at the wrist and around the patient's neck. Two ABDs are placed inside the stockinette as neck padding. Satisfaction questionnaires were completed at the first follow-up visit asking three questions. How likely would you be to choose this sling in the future how convenient is this sling? And how satisfied are you and your child with this sling? All three questions showed statistically better results with the Providence sling, so the authors concluded it is a better choice. Of note, this type of custom stockinette sling should also be cheaper and lead to better compliance. Lastly, I'll turn things back over to Craig Lauer as we turn to the lower extremity section of the journal. I'm
2: joined today by Dr. Hattie El-Tayebe, who is the lead author on the study How Accurate is the Multiplier Method in Predicting the Timing of Angular Correction after Hemi Hemiepiphysiodesis. This study was conducted at the International Center for Limb Lengthening in Baltimore with senior author John Herzenberg. Hattie, thanks for being here today.
5: Thank you so much, Craig, for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: You and your co-authors performed a retrospective study of 131 physis in 77 patients who had coronal plane anomalies that were addressed with tension band plates. You calculated the amount of correction over time that each case required, and then you compare that to the correction that would have been predicted by the multiplier method. In most of the cases, about 70%, the multiplier method predicted that the correction would occur faster than it did in true practice. There was a varied distribution with 15% of the predictions proving accurate, and then 16% guessing the other way, where the true correction occurred faster than the prediction. Subgroup analysis did not show a difference in the predictions on the basis of diagnosis or skeletal versus chronologic age, but you and your co-authors admit that subgroup analysis is likely underpowered uh, to detect anything but very large differences. Can I ask what your motivation was for the study?
5: Yes, so when doing hemi using tension band plates, we either put them in for some time and take them out after successful correction, or we can put them right before skeletal maturity so the plates do not need to be removed and we do not risk rebound. In the latter case, we need to predict the timing of surgery. And the great tool to do this is using the multiplier method, especially that it's now quite handy with the mobile app. The aim of the study was to validate the multiplier method for such a purpose.
2: And was there anything in your results that surprised
5: you? That's a great question. And doing the multiplier method, we used the chronological age. For those patients who had a bone age study, we recalculated the predictions using the skeletal age. And we thought that we could get more accurate results, but we actually didn't. The predictions did not vary when we recalculated them using the skeletal age. However, there were only 28 physis who had their bone age available. So this very comparison might have been biased due to being underpowered. We also observed the least-multiply method under predictions in the adolescent balance group, uh, which means that this group probably corrected faster than others, which was surprising. Um, This observation was also reported in another paper by Corey et al. And I believe this observation needs more research.
2: Hmm. Surprising in that we would have expected those patients to maybe correct slower given this sick uh, medial physis, but they actually seem to correct more rapidly. Have any of these results changed your practice?
5: Yes, definitely. So I guess I'm now more cautious when calculating the duration of angular correction using the multiplier method, as I now bear in mind that the duration predicted might be less than what actually is going to be.
2: And so if you're timing this for the end of skeletal maturity, you may actually start your correction a little bit earlier than the prediction in the case that it is under-corrected?
5: Exactly. I would say that the under-predictions of the multiplier method suggests a kind of a ramp up phase in the angular correction process. And this should be taken into consideration when timing the angular correction using the multiplier method. Especially around skeletal maturity. So, yes, I would say we should start in that case, we should, we should start like two to three months earlier than that predicted.
2: Really appreciate you spending the time uh, with me today and also uh, appreciate the effort that you and your co authors put forth in doing the paper.
5: Uh, thanks again
0: for having me, Craig. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Craig. That's it for our second episode brought to you by JPO and Posna. We hope you've learned something and will subscribe in the iTunes Store. See you next month.